Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The text reads like this. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that it is by your word that we are sanctified. It is by your word that we are made strong and fed and conformed to the image of your son. And therefore, Lord, we pray for your help now as we come to your word, that it would not fall on deaf ears, that it would not return to you void, but that it would do exactly what you've sent it out to do. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear you and to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week was our week of prayer. And what a week it was. On day one, we we gathered to pray for this church Day two, we prayed for local churches. Day three, we prayed for the nation. Day four, our mission partners. Day five, the persecuted church. And on day three, as we were praying for the nation, I began to wonder whether or not we were finding it hard to pray with hope. Please don't be offended by that. We had our our prayer booklets open, didn't we? And all of the the points, very many of them anyway, serve to remind us that the situation here in the UK is bleak. And we knew that, didn't we, of course, before our week of prayer. And so I want to remind us tonight that in fact, there is hope. That there is hope for our nation That there's hope for sinners who are perhaps furthest away from God. Why? Well, because in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Paul tells us that Jesus died to reconcile all things to God. That is the foundation of our hope. We all know, don't we, I hope gathered here tonight, that things aren't the way they should be. 
And that's because things aren't the way they used to be. I'm not talking about the 1950s. I'm talking about the world that existed before it was bulldozed by sin. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 assures us that the world that God made was good. It was perfect even. No one just was. No dictators. No tanks. No earthquakes. No neck aches. No toothaches. No school bullies. No addictions. No funerals. No regrets. No sin. And the harmony that existed on earth was a reflection of the harmony that existed between man and God. That in other words, because our relationship with God was as it ought to have been, the world was as it ought to have been as well. God saw all that he made and he saw that it was good. But when our first parents sinned and turned their back on God, they fractured their relationship with him and the result was a fracturing of the entire cosmos. Death entered the world. And therefore, the fracturing of the world was a reflection of the fracturing between us and God. And that's why today, everything is broken. That's why our nation is broken. It's not because we have the wrong people in number 10 Downing Street. No, it's because sin exists in the hearts of men. There should be perfect peace in your home, shouldn't there? But, but there isn't. And the ground should produce enough food for the whole world, but it doesn't. And your body should be perfectly healthy tonight, but it isn't. And you should live forever, but you won't, not in the world as we know it anyway. And again, the culprit underneath it all is sin. But Jesus died for sin. And therefore, the down payment was made for the entire cosmos to be brought back into the condition in which God made it to begin with. Friends, therein is hope. And that's what I want us to see in Colossians chapter 1 tonight. Now, as we find ourselves in Colossians tonight, let's remember that Paul had never actually met the Christians to whom he was writing. The church that he was writing to wasn't one of Paul's many church plants that he wrote to in many of the epistles that we have. Uh, the believers there in Colossae, they lived in this small city, and, they'd be, and Paul had been assured of their faith because of a, a believer there called Epaphras. The problem was Colossae was swimming in, drowning in, and saturated in evil things like the occult. Theirs was an antichrist culture. I wonder if that sounds familiar to us at all as we gather tonight. And so Paul wrote to the church and he pointed them to a sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. To a Jesus Christ who is not threatened by the powers of darkness but who reigns and who rules over them all and who has all of them underneath his feet and who is never threatened, and who is never afraid, because he is the potentate of, Christ, of time. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. And therefore, if we're so likely to 
We like to, to relay that wonderful quote, don't we, by Robert Murray McChain, for every look within, take ten, 10 looks at him. But maybe we could adjust that tonight and say, for every look at sin, take 10 looks at him. Why? Because the Jesus of Colossians, the Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus of the Bible is sovereign over it all. Sin and demons and death and hell and the, and the devil himself. In other words, Christ is the ruler of all, and therefore in him there is hope. And in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20, Paul tells us that Jesus died to reconcile all things to, to God. Number one, as creation's Lord, and number two, by his blood. By his blood. So number one, as creation's Lord. If you've read one of those uh, leaflets that we published as a, as a church, you will have read that anecdote about that guy called Joshua Bell. He's a concert violinist, and one day he, he took a $14 million violin, and he took it to a train station, and he posed as a busker. And as he played, 1,097 people passed him by, seven stopped to listen, one person recognized him, and at the end of his stint, he took in a whopping $52. And so imagine him there, beneath the baseball cap was a genius. And beneath Jesus' average looks was God. That's what Paul is telling us there in verse 15 when he writes, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Think about that for a moment. The, the God whom no man can see dressed himself in muscle and skin cells and came down to our world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on in verse 15, The firstborn over all creation. Uh, that is the, the preeminent one, the one with unique rights and unique privileges over all creation. The, the word firstborn doesn't have so much relevance to, to chronology, but instead to authority. Maybe you've had a, a knock on the door from those two very well-dressed Nice men, they're clean shaven unlike me, their uh, shirts are buttoned all the way to the top and they like to try to convince you that Jesus Christ had, had a beginning. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll use this, this text here to say that Jesus Christ was created of Jehovah God. But the word prototokos in Greek has nothing to do with chronology, it has everything to do with authority. That's why we read from Psalm 89 in it as we opened our service tonight. Because in Psalm 89, 27, God says to David, and you remember David was the youngest of all of his brothers, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Again, it's about authority, not chronology. And Paul goes on in verse 16, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the point that we're making here tonight is this. As Lord of creation, Jesus can fix creation. As Lord of creation, Jesus can fix creation. No matter how messed up the world gets, 
No matter how far our nation runs away from God, Jesus made it, Jesus can fix it, Jesus reigns and rules over it. I still remember before I'd, I joined you all, uh, Mark preached from Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And he illustrated that by talking about uh, an architect behind one of the huge skyscrapers in in Dubai. Years of planning, years of design, years of amending and tweaking. But when it was all done, the architect's work wasn't done. Why? Well, because as the one who made it, he knows best how to fix it. And again, the point is, since Jesus made the world, Jesus knows how to fix the world. And what's true on a a national scale is true on an individual scale as well. Isn't that wonderful that as Jesus knit you together in your mother's womb, and that as Jesus chose your hair color and your eye color and your strengths and your weaknesses and your personality and your unique DNA makeup, he knows how to fix the problems within you as well. Why? Because he made you. He designed you. And isn't it a glorious encouragement, encouragement tonight to think that hope isn't a mystery? Hope isn't an enigma. Hope isn't locked away somewhere underground in some vault somewhere that we'll never find. No, no, no. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus. And I recognize some of us tonight are maybe thinking, well, Hugh, if that's true, then Jesus certainly doesn't need my faith in him. He can just get on with the job all without me. But friends, the point is this. Since the problem began with us, the solution has to begin with us too. In other words, if sin is the root cause of the disaster that, around, that is around us, then sin within us needs to be dealt with first. And the work of, of conversion is, is really the work of Jesus prying our fingers off of faith in self and causing us to fall on him, trusting him, saying, Lord Jesus, I have nothing without you. You made me, you can fix me. And I can't earn your approval. I can only receive it via your grace to me. And we're going to see a little bit more of that a little bit later on. But friend, listen, if Jesus has enabled you to trust in him, then the task on your life, the task on our lives tonight is this, enlarging your vision of Jesus' greatness. Because when personal disaster and global disaster threatens to overwhelm you, the greater you know him to be, the greater your peace will be. That if he's over all of creation, surely he's over this storm. And if he's over the, the, the spiritual realm, all that is seen and unseen, then surely he's over whatever it is that I'm dealing with tonight. And when you know that he has you, and when you know that he has your life and has this nation in his omnipotent hands that that have never failed and, and do not know how to fail, then you'll be able to sleep at night knowing that he has everything in his hand. 
Someone said this, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which, which the child of God rests his head at night, giving him perfect peace. So from when you're restless and when I am restless, what do we need to do? We need to remember the Jesus of Colossians chapter one. He's the one that has it all under control. And he's the one who isn't threatened by what threatens you. And therefore, the bigger he becomes in your mind, the smaller your fears will become. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, or all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Does that sound like someone who gets anxious? So Jesus died then to reconcile all things to God as creation's Lord, but then second, by his blood. By his blood. This is how Jesus actually did it. This is how the one who made the world fixed the world, by the shedding of his blood on the cross of Calvary. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus shed his blood to reconcile all things to God. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful, so bear with me as I use it again. But imagine for a, a moment a little, a little boy who's working with his dad on a, on a remote control boat. The day comes, they, they finish it, it's fully functioning and operable, so they, they take it down to the late, local lake and they, they're, they're having a great time sailing it all around with the remote control. But then suddenly, uh, a gust of wind, a storm blows it out of view. And then weeks later, they, they see the boat that they made in a shop window. They know it's theirs. They, they, they made it, their initials are on it. And so they go into the store and they, they, they buy it from the shopkeeper. Well, now it's doubly theirs. They made it and they bought it. Well, the world was lost to sin in Genesis 3. But when Jesus went to the cross, he paid the price to pay it back, to buy it back. So that now we and the whole creation can be reconciled to God and we can enjoy harmony with God. And if you're thinking, well, Hugh, great, that sounds wonderful, where is it? Well, the answer to that question is what we've been seeing for the last nine months and the last 24 sermons in the book of Ephesians. It's in the church, the beginning of the new creation. It's why our verses tonight, yes, they talk about creation, but then they quickly move to new creation. Verse 18 again, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The church then, of which Jesus is the head, is the beginning of the new creation that will one day cover the entire cosmos. And the knowledge of the glory of God that right now is, is so often contained within the church will one day cover the entire world even as the waters cover the sea. 
And therefore, think about this, when the, fu- when the church functions as it should, it is a foretaste of what will be when Jesus returns. That is amazing. What a calling we have on our lives. You see how this lifts us out of this utterly ridiculous idea that church is this religious club where we, where we come together, we enjoy a nice little sing-song, Hugh shouts his head off at us for about 30 minutes, and then we all go home. No, no, no. This is a foretaste of eternity when the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that when we as a church actually live like that, what are we doing? Well, we're, we are advertising a preview of what we'll one day be. And therefore, friend, let me say this to you. If you don't love the church, something is wrong because this is as close to heaven as you will get this side of eternity. We are the beginning of a reconciled new creation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. The church is nothing less than the embassy of heaven on earth. What should we do then? Well friends, we should endeavor to make the church look as glorious as it will one day be. Think about it, what is a foretaste for? Well, a foretaste is to whet our appetite of what is to come. And when the church lives up to its glorious calling, and when we reflect the the wonder of the creation that is to come in the life of our church, we are whetting our appetite for what will one day be. And so we should do everything to, to live up to that calling. One of the ways we can do that is by using our gifts to the max. Why? Well, because God gifted you to make his church look as glorious as it really is. That's why you're gifted the way you are. You remember the parable of the talents? There's a business owner, we would say today, and he gives money to to five servants. To to one he gives lots, and he goes all the way down from five to one. And then he returns, and he he comes to see what's, what's been going on. How have they invested his resources? How have they put what he gave them to use? And there is great blessing on those that used what they were given for the sake of more and there's great judgment to the one who received very little but buried it in the ground and didn't use it at all. And therefore, friends, we need to endeavor to make five on five, if that's what he's given you, four on four, three on three, two on two, one on one. Why? Well, for the church to reflect the glory that is ours. So friend, what are you good at? Use it to the max. And when you do that, you also need to keep your destiny in mind as well because when you do use your gifts to the max, there will be blood and there will be sweat and there will be tears and yet heaven will put it all into perspective for you. Heaven will keep you from throwing in the towel, 
Heaven will keep you from, from bailing on what Jesus has given you. I hope this doesn't discourage Michael too much, but I have to say that when I was in his role and then when I moved on to another role in that church in the States, I really thought that I was ready for ministry. Well, I had absolutely no idea what I was getting myself into. And there's really nothing that can prepare you for it. It's a little bit like having kids. You, you think, oh, you're ready to have kids because you've babysat kids every now and again. And then you have kids and you realize you didn't have a clue what you were doing. And so it is with, with, our, with our calling. You've got to keep heaven in view in order for you to persevere in what God has given you. And you remember that because of his atoning blood, it will all be worth it. Because one day the cosmos will be reconciled to heaven as God and sinners have first been reconciled. So friends, we can pray with hope. We can be assured that in the end, all of the victory will be his and all of the glory will stream from the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven down to earth like a bride adorned for her husband. And really, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, it is my privilege to say to you, you don't need to earn a place in the new heavens and the new earth for the next 20 years of your life. You don't need to seek to earn God's approval. You don't need to, to, to worry about all of your good works outweighing all of your, your bad works. You don't need to worry about that at all. What do you need to do? You need to simply repent and believe the gospel. And the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. And one day all of heaven will hear his voice and all of earth will hear his voice and the angels will hear the voice of the redeemed washed white in blood because of the grace upon grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, there is your hope. There is your hope in view of the nation that Jesus died to reconcile all things to God. And one day, one day the down payment will be brought to fruition in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. 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 Let me pray for us and we'll stand to our feet and we'll sing. Father,